0: Talking Books on New Salt, one oh six to one oh eight.
1: I was thinking back to, you know, visiting Yellowstone after certain uh, romantic breakups or during the middle of uh, certain wonderful relationships. And, um, of course, for most of the time, I was visiting Yellowstone as a tourist rather than as a researcher. It was only in the last few years that I decided to write this book. And certainly when I go to Yellowstone, it's, it's a wonderful place. I learn a lot about nature and uh, about how it works there. I learn a little bit about myself as I see myself in this glorious environment. But in the end, uh, people are the ultimate um, mystery, and so what I have not learned mostly is about myself and my companions. There is still so much more to learn about everybody.
0: The story of Yellowstone is a story of a place gifted with natural wonders and cultural force and with powerful yet ever-changing ways to harness those gifts for the greater good. It is, in other words, the story of America. It's a story that Americans tell about ourselves, hear about ourselves and come to see as a description of who and what we are. The words of American writer, historian and all-round rambler, John Clayton, from his latest book, Wonder Landscape, Yellowstone National Park and the Evolution of an American Cultural Icon, published by Pegasus Books. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to journey through one of the most awe-inspiring natural wonders of the world, Yellowstone National Park, and ask, does Yellowstone reflect the soul of the American people? In Wonder Landscape, John Clayton writes, Culture is always lured with new meanings piling on top of old ones. Yellowstone's meaning encompasses much more, including wildlife, architecture, frontier history and environmental politics. So, how important is Yellowstone National Park to American national identity? And is it more cultural than natural?
1: Hi, my name is John Clayton. I'm a nonfiction writer from Montana. My latest book, Wonder Landscape Yellowstone National Park and the Evolution of an American Cultural Icon. Is published by Pegasus, and it covers the history of Yellowstone from sort of a cultural perspective, what Yellowstone has meant to America and the world and why we have uh, seen certain values in that landscape.
0: Really well done on the book, John. I absolutely loved it. It brought me into this divine uh, space of relaxation in one way. But you uh, bring up some very troubling issues in relation to the environment also. So you you find yourself, as you're reading through the book, going into a whole range of different moods and concerns. But it's an absolutely exquisite uh, piece of writing. And I think anyone interested in the natural world, cultural history, uh, and how we're living uh, as people will be unbelievably interested in wonderland, uh, wonderlandscape. Um, can I throw you a big wide open question to kick things off do you think a place can hold an ideal if you will, do you think that's possible
1: what fascinates me is our desire for the place to be able to hold those values uh, you know I think as people we have ideals and values and we, we want to we, we, we want to impose them on things, we want our, our partners, our lovers, our landscapes, our communities to hold these values um, and yes, to, start, to, to a large degree, uh, landscapes can hold values as, as people and communities can, uh, maybe not perfectly, not as well as many of us would hope, but if they couldn't do it at all, I think, uh, I think we would have finally given up on it.
0: So when I say the word uh, wonder, what does that evoke for you? What crops up into your head?
1: You know, I, I first came across the word wonder simply in my research in the history of Yellowstone, Yellowstone was founded as a national park just a couple of years after the publication of Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. And so when the uh, first white explorers came across these weird geysers and other thermal features, they said, boy, this is so strange. This is like the Wonderland that Alice could have encountered. And so Yellowstone was nicknamed Wonderland from, from the very start. But as I looked at its history, I saw that it had evolved into this sort of landscape. And it was a landscape that evoked wonder, that evoked this sense we have of, uh, you know, the magic of things that, that we don't understand and find incredibly beautiful. And so I think that was the wonder that, that I was uh, aiming at.
0: You argue in your introductions that the story of Yellowstone is a story of what America wants from Yellowstone. I thought that's very interesting because um, whether it's a person, an object um, or a piece of music or something creative, it really is how the person is interacting with it and what they want, isn't it?
1: It really is. Yeah, it was such a breakthrough for me to to realise that Yellowstone functions that same way. Um, I like how you phrase it as as almost an artwork that we are interpreting, we are bringing our own, our own values and interpretations to this creation. Um, in this case, a, a, a place created by nature, not a literal artwork created by, by an artist, um, but yeah, I, I, I think we interpret Yellowstone the same way that, that people interpret other great works of art.
0: John, you first visited Yellowstone Park, I think, back in 1988. You were a student, and it was at the time um, of the Great Forest. And um, the park was going through a lot of changes, wasn't it?
1: I actually visited, my, my first visit to Yellowstone was in May of 1988. Uh, early spring, it had just opened up. Um, hardly any people there back then, um, and so I was able to have these encounters with wildlife on the side of the road um, with no other people around. It was really just extraordinary um, and I also had my first encounter with the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, which I think is maybe one of the park 's least uh, publicized wonders uh, we we talk a lot about the geysers and Old Faithful was certainly remarkable that day, but I was also fascinated by the the colors and the, the glory of uh, the view uh, of the canyon of the Yellowstone River. Um, and, and, you know, because it was early spring, that was all etched in snow and particularly beautiful. Uh, I had grown up in Massachusetts. And so after that visit, I went back to the East Coast and through the summer of 1988 kept seeing the headlines and the TV coverage about these massive wildfires in Yellowstone. Uh, They ended up uh, covering about a third of the park and threatening almost all of the major tourist developments. Uh, And so there was a real sense in the media that the park was being destroyed by these fires. And so perhaps I had been one of the last people to to see it whole um, and yet, I was, you know, experiencing this from afar in terms of its its apparent destruction. Uh, I was uh, I moved out to to the Yellowstone area a couple years later and was able to see what the fires truly meant and the the ways that ecologically it had not been destroyed but renewed.
0: And the conversation on the wildfires and what it sprung up has really continued to today, hasn't it? Because it's what, how we're understanding what the damages are and the information that we have and, and also how we're going to act upon it. And none of that seems to have been resolved, has it?
1: It, it really hasn't. I, you know, I expected when I came out here to understand the fires and what they meant in a way that I hadn't been able to from a couple thousand miles away and and i spent years just sort of puzzling over it and 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 people in yellowstone didn't didn't seem to be coming to grips with the meaning of the fires either uh the, for ecologists the meaning of the fires is clear forest fires are a part of nature they are a natural process of renewal they are part of what we are honoring in yellowstone as a national park we are honoring the ecosystem, and the processes that support that ecosystem. And yet for the public as a whole, the I think what the public really wants to honor in Yellowstone are the beautiful scenery or the particular animals or uh, the particular geysers. These are things which can potentially be destroyed by wildfires, even as the fires are supporting the ecosystem as a whole that supports these. Teachers. And so there was this dissonance between, well, what did the fires really mean? And that was one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book, was to understand the meaning of the fires. And I felt like as I got into the research, I saw the fires um, burning not just trees, not affecting not just ecosystems, but affecting the values that people have put on the park and and in some sense threatening um, our ideals as Americans um, as they threatened these uh, these trees and buildings
0: are most visitors to Yellowstone, are they, is it, are they coming at it from a kind of a, a pilgrimage perspective? Like, do you think that's fair to say it's like whether it's the Camino in, in Spain or, you know, it's a kind of seen as almost a kind of a spiritual sacred spot that people aren't just, you know, whether they're camping or staying in one or two of the kind of guest houses in the, in, in the park, that there's a kind of a spiritual dimension into the whole experience of Yellowstone?
1: I really like the word pilgrimage. Um, I, you know, certainly for my family, when I was a child, we, we went to a lot of national parks. We never actually made it all the way out to Yellowstone from the East Coast. But uh, my parents were determined to show their children the greatest features of the country, and they knew that those features would be captured in national parks. And so I think there has, uh, certainly for for the last hundred years at least, been this notion that uh, that parks represent the best of the country and uh, are places that you need to go. I think for some people, there's definitely a spiritual component to that and an ability to connect with a natural environment. But to me, one of the interesting things about Yellowstone is that it covers both that natural spirituality and other um, aspects that can generate pilgrimages, uh, such as patriotism. Um, The notion that Yellowstone is the first national park in the world, um, uh, America's best idea in the, the phrase that was popularized by Ken Burns, uh, you know, it, it, it's like visiting the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia or the sites of the Revolutionary War in Boston. It's something that you go to to understand American history. Uh, and so you don't necessarily have a spiritual perspective on that. You have a more patriotic perspective. When I saw Yellowstone functioning in these multiple ways, providing a, a multiple types of pilgrimages, I started to understand its, its huge cultural power
0: would it be too much to describe it as a romantic frontier or do you think that's me kind of losing it a bit
1: <laughs> if you're losing it so does everybody else uh, you know the the american west the frontier days are are so romantic exert such a pull on all of us that uh that i think definitely that uh, that's a factor in yellowstone um one of the things that really fascinates me about Yellowstone is uh, they have a truck wagon dinner where you ride out on, uh, on sort of an old Conestoga wagon to this remote place where cowboys will cook steaks over a fire. And it's a very romantic, almost sort of a cowboy movie style scene that could have never actually taken place within the confines of Yellowstone National Park. It, it's been a national park ever since European cultures have been there, and thus there has never been any uh, cow grazing, no no cattle drives, none of these tropes of western movies that we think of um, were ever taking place in the national park because it was reserved uh, for public use uh, likewise no no mining in the national park. and yet I think a lot of a, a lot of people do visit Yellowstone looking for these frontier, Images. What was particularly fascinating to me was to track down the source of that and to see that Yellowstone emerged as a metaphor for the Western frontier with the dude ranching industry in the 1910s, um, which brought um, wealthy Easterners uh, to the West to experience frontier uh, activities such as. Uh, horseback riding, hunting, fishing uh, and they would do so on private land outside the park but the highlight of their of the dude's summer would be a trip to Yellowstone to see the wonders of America's first national park and so Yellowstone became a, a symbol of the frontier and, and indeed uh, its leaders embraced the notion that Yellowstone was the romantic American frontier
0: what do you make of Ansel Adams' photographs of um, Yellowstone? They're, they're unbelievable. I imagine, though, that some visitors, you know, when they're kind of looking for their Ansel Adams moment as they're flying around the park or whatever they're getting up to, that, you know, it's like what he captured was a spiritual intensity of sorts, didn't he, in his photographs? That it's it, He not just captured the uh, raw environment uh, and so on, but there was a poetry to the, the visuals, the light, in the way he, he Captured it all, wasn't there?
1: Oh, very much so. Yeah, I I had not known much about Ansel Adams in Yellowstone before embarking on this research, and uh, and as you say, his uh, his photographs are, are marvelous. As with all Ansel Adams photos, of course, they're they're big shots of unpeopled nature. You know, there's never any people in the photographs. It's always just. The, the mountains and the clouds and maybe a, a lake, or in this case, a geyser, and, uh, and the way it makes you feel a, a sort of glorious power of nature. Um, and so Ansel Adams is actually more famous for Yosemite National Park in California, but he did come to Yellowstone in 1942 and start taking uh, some, of these, some of these wonderful images. Of course, he always shot in black and white. And so one of the interesting things was in the 1950s, as you had basic Brownie cameras, any tourist could try to imitate Ansel's art uh, on their own just by, you know, with a little point and click. And of course, you wouldn't have the same technical genius that he did, but you could feel like you were creating your own art out of this very special place, and you could maybe get a little bit closer to that spiritual glory that that he captured so well. As you say, sometimes it can be hard given the crowd, and what was really interesting for me in the research was to realize that Ansel Adams faced that same challenge as well. His first visit uh, to Yellowstone came in 1942 during gas rationing uh, in, in World War II. And it was uh, a serious drop in park visitation, uh, you know, the, the fewest visitors they'd had in, in 30 years or so, since basically before automobiles had been allowed in. Uh, when he came back to Yellowstone in, I think it was nineteen thirty nine, he wrote in his diaries and letters that he was just disgusted by the crowds and the, and the people and the, and the sort of spectacles. Uh, that were associated with a mass tourist event. They were probably commonly associated with Yellowstone, but he had luckily avoided uh, during the gas rationing of the war.
0: John, you quote a very uh, moving quote from um, Standing Bear. He was a writer-activist who died in 1939. He was a Native American activist. And, you know, some of the stuff he's come out with has been absolutely beautiful. But one of the the things that he said, which you you quote in, in the book, is only to the white man was nature a wilderness and only to him was it infested with wild animals and savage people. To us it was tame, earth was bountiful, and we were surrounded with the blessings of the great mystery. They're such humbling words, but they're also very um, upsetting words when you look at the context of Native American history and how Native Americans around the um, Yellowstone Park were treated, isn't it?
1: Very much so. There's such a fascinating um, potential uh, Indigenous history to be written about Yellowstone and such a, uh, a burning need for it. Um, a lot of people, when they heard that I was writing a cultural history of Yellowstone, were really hoping that I was writing an Indian history of Yellowstone. And I, I would have loved to do so, but the material simply isn't there. Uh, there were indigenous people who lived in Yellowstone um, before the descendants of the Europeans arrived. And they had a very interesting, from what we can tell archaeologically, they had a a very appropriate lifestyle to the place where they were living. And yet between uh, diseases and war and, you know, the horrible uh, racist attitudes, they were largely wiped out um, by the time most uh, European descendants arrived. The few who were left in Yellowstone, um, there, uh, with the decimation of the mountain sheep populations that they had uh, had hunted, had become incredibly poor and were shunted off to reservations where they were mixed with other tribes, and neither the white people nor the other tribes appreciated what a special thing this had been that these people had lived in Yellowstone Park, and so many of them died off without. Uh, their stories being captured. Um, And so uh, there's a couple of of archaeologists who have written some interesting materials about uh, indigenous history in Yellowstone. But in terms of actual stories from people, uh, I'm not sure we're ever going to be able to capture it. Uh, And so one of the things we will lose is the sense uh, from Luther Standing Bear of the way that indigenous cultures saw nature in such a uh, a different light than the way Judeo-Christian-influenced cultures do. We see things through the Garden of Eden where nature is wonderful and people are sinful and likely to destroy it, and we need to keep it separate from us in order to keep it perfect. Whereas indigenous cultures tended to see people as part of nature. And so, of course, you would be part of the most glorious parts of nature. You wouldn't keep these parks separate from your life. You would incorporate them into every aspect of your life. Um, Obviously, that would pose challenges for huge populations as we have now. Um, But it is an interesting and and beautiful way to look at the world that we have in many ways lost.
0: You know, if you if you look at all across the world, whether you're talking about Central or South America or all across Africa, if there was more um, Indigenous cultures and Indigenous groups in um, political administrations and, you know, had that um, Indigenous consciousness on how we go about uh, working on issues on sustainability or climate action or, you know, or basically our relationship to nature, you know, the world would be a lot better place and we probably wouldn't be having all these gaps conversations now that we're having on the devastating impacts of climate change and how we're dealing with you know our carbon footprint?
1: Certainly more uh, you know more perspectives more diversity is always going to lead to stronger solutions. It would not be easy Uh, you know I think there are a lot of, of hard issues that would have to be debated and there are a lot of ways in which those Perspectives that the sheep eater Indians living in Yellowstone 200 years ago, uh, you know, would not be very applicable in today's world where there are just so many more people and so many more technologies. And how exactly would you map them forward? It wouldn't be easier, but it certainly uh, is worth doing to the extent that we can.
0: You pitch up a very interesting question halfway through the book. You talked a lot about you know, um, uh, you know some of the kind of wild animals um, roaming around the park and that you know some visitors forget that it's not a kind of a petting zoo or that you know they have empathy for the animals and they want to touch out and reach out or feed the animals and sometimes it can be to their absolute detriment. But you pitch up a very interesting question when you say is do people actually visit or see it as a petting zoo and it's a very very difficult one because you know you've got visitor enthusiasm and, you know, the beautiful animals all across uh, the park. And you can understand the curiosity and why um, tourists reach out, can't you?
1: Oh, very much so. Um, you know, th- th- these animals are, are, are magnificent and one of the magical things about Yellowstone is that you can get so close to them. Uh, you know, you'll just have a bison walk across the road and there is no, you know, there's no cages, there's no Restrictions on the animals, and that's something that, that we don't see any other place, uh, you know, especially with a with an animal as unusual as a bison or a wolf or a grizzly bear, to mention some of the other um, key animals in in Yellowstone. And so there was a fascinating uh, episode in the spring of 2016 when uh, a tourist encountered a, a newborn bison calf. It had been separated from its mother and was coming up to to these two men, trying to get them to protect it, trying to get them to help it somehow. And uh, they ended up loading it in the back of their SUV and trying to take it to a ranger station where the ranger was uh, appropriately horrified that you would be interfering with nature, gave them a, a huge fine. And the story sort of went viral. These stupid tourists who don't understand Yellowstone who are trying to intervene. Um, I had some sympathy for those tourists. Uh, they, they were Canadians. Um, they, were, uh, they, they had visited national parks in Africa where they said the attitude is different. It's all about protecting the animals. And so if an animal is in danger, yeah, you, you take it to a ranger to help it. Um, in fact, this bison calf, because its mother had somehow abandoned it, it was uh, it was condemned to, to die. It would have died within the next few days, eaten by a, a wolf or coyote. That's part of the ecosystem. That's part of how nature works. That's what we celebrate in Yellowstone, the ecosystem as a whole. Um, but that's very different from... Uh, the way people around the country and around the world see nature working. It takes some getting used to. Uh, It takes a certain amount of uh, emotional coldness to look at this tiny bison calf and say, yeah, you're going to die, and and I'm going to let that happen because that's the way the process has to work. Uh, I thought it was a fascinating cultural cultural moment that way.
2: Ain't no use to sit and wonder why, babe don't know by now, ain't no use to sit and wonder why babe, doesn't matter anyhow, when your rooster crows at the break of dawn, look out your window and I'll be gone, you're the reason that I'm traveling on, don't think twice, it's alright. name, guy, like you never did before. Ain't no use you calling out my name, gal, I can't hear you anymore. Still I'm wishing there was something you could do or say that would make me change my mind and stay, but we never really did that much talking anyway. I don't think twice, it's alright.
0: You're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with American writer, cultural historian and environmental activist, John Clayton, whose latest book, Wonder Landscape, Yellowstone National Park and the Evolution of an American Cultural Icon, has just been published by Pegasus Books, where John writes, In Yellowstone, people found an intimacy with the natural world. Although it might have only been a scrap compared to what Ansel wanted them to find, it was still profound. John goes on to state, What many nature lovers value in birds is a sense of wildness, independence and otherness. I asked John about protection and safety issues in Yellowstone National Park and the tragic case of Harry Walker, who was killed by a bear in Yellowstone National Park in 1972 and how this case significantly changed american wilderness management
1: yeah it was a tragic situation where uh, a young man was uh, attacked at, at midnight in his uh, tent out outside of Old Faithful. So, um, his companion ran for help but uh, but was not able to to save him uh, and and yet it happened at such a, a tense time for Uh, for Yellowstone and for America in general in the uh, early 1970s when, you know, our culture was at war, the hippies versus the uh, older generation. And, And we were also changing the way we saw nature. For decades before that, Yellowstone had been the kind of place where you could feed a bear candy out of your car. You would have this intimate relationship to a wild animal and starting in the 1960s as ecologists learned more about wild animals and wildlife and what makes them special uh we came to appreciate that that what what we love about wildlife is wildness is the fact that they are not pets that we should not treat them as pets and try and feed them and so policies changed to stop people from feeding bears to stop bears from eating garbage at the hotels. They had, been, they had been doing that since almost the beginning of the park. You know, your hotel throws some garbage out the back door and the bears start eating it. Um, they decided to, to limit those garbage pits, and the bears were hungry. And so, uh, you know, this kid had probably kept a, a rather dirty camp in terms of leaving out pots of, of leftover food. When he came back to camp um, in the middle of the night, the bear saw somebody interrupting with his dinner and uh, and, and lashed out. Uh, as you say, a tragic story, and yet one that, that I felt was very illuminating in terms of the way that our culture changes its definition of nature. Um, there, there's one picture in the book of people in bleachers watching grizzlies eat hotel garbage. And that was how people in the 1920s and 30s thought of nature. Oh, yeah, we see these animals eating stuff we didn't want to eat. And by the 70s, that was no longer nature. What was nature was wildness of animals eating only their own stuff, not our stuff. And as we made that change, it had it had effects that, that rippled through,
0: uh, you know, in some cases, tragically. The interesting thing is there, uh, John, that, you know, every country and and, and literally every citizen will have a, a different view on how the natural environment should be managed. And as you mentioned, you know, you can go to, let's say, Africa and different countries and West and East Africa and how they do it and they do it quite differently. But there's so many different policies on rubbish, bringing in rubbish, taking out rubbish in national parks, plastics you can uh, bring in or not. You know, in South America, they're very, very tight in all of this type of stuff. And also in terms of, you know... Whether it's getting again, getting close up to animals, or you know your actual physical footprint—cars, uh, jeeps, whatever—in national parks, it all, it all is so different. I, I don't know. Is there a right way? Is there is there one way? Is the right way? I don't know. Is it?
1: Well, I, I, what I have learned in writing this book is that there is a right way for the culture at the time. Um, you know, the in the in the sixties and seventies, it was very important for us to establish certain areas as wilderness to say that these areas have been relatively untrammeled by man. They are, in a sense, closer to the Garden of Eden than any other um, place in in the country, and so we're going to honor these national parks and wilderness areas. Uh, That was important to the culture of, uh, of the time as they were dealing with the effects of Uh, humans uh, everywhere else, especially when you think of of water pollution and air pollution and those, those huge crises of the 1960s. Now that we are in an age of climate change, and it's clear that human effects on the environment are affecting the globe as a whole, there's no way to set aside a wilderness area that won't have its climate change. Um, maybe those views of nature are no longer appropriate. Um, and yet I'm not sure that we could have gotten to or hopefully will get to today's views of nature without going through those previous steps. Uh, so I'm not going to say that, oh, if we had only understood global warming 100 years ago, things would be different. I don't think we could have until, uh, you know, we we couldn't be here without following that path.
0: I'm just wondering, John, you know, wilderness has always been associated with, you know, I suppose, spiritual growth, solitude and all of that. Do you think everyone who visits Yellowstone National Park or other big parks around the world, no matter where, if it's in Africa or Central America or wherever, that they will experience you know that raw beauty and energy and that a kind of spiritual uplift of sorts i you know a lot of the parks that i've been to around the world it's hard to get off road and within that unless you're in the really big wide open there's always a, a station somewhere within 30 40k so that idea of wilderness now and how governments have um patrolled parks are with their um with their with their uh, protection officers and so on it's very hard to get into that feel of wilderness.
1: Yes, I I agree with uh, your description of the difficulties of wilderness. One of the things that that fascinates me is that Yellowstone can serve other functions as well because I, I think you're right. Not everybody feels wilderness in the park. Not everybody is ready to have the same Sorts of spiritual transformations that, say, Anthel Adams did, and yet Yellowstone is also appealing to people who are not expecting, or not willing, or not capable of having that spiritual experience, and and the. the